Osiris Production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Greetings, humans, and welcome back to another edition of Dead to Me. For those just tuning in, this season the gang is going through the Dead studio albums and trying to get a handle on things. I'm not sure we ever will, and that's the beauty of it. The Grateful Dead are a slippery band, no more so than on their officially sanctioned non-live releases. Oxamoxoa is another great example. On one level, it's an acid pop record that's trying its best to compete with the era's psychedelic masterpieces, of which there are no shortage. Seriously, look up 1969 as a release year. It's pretty impressive. And I suppose Oxamoxoa is too, but maybe not for the same reasons. Once again, we find the dead learning as they go and not being entirely satisfied with the results. Garcia himself said of Oxamoxoa, We were off on a false note. We were doing something that wasn't really natural. We were doing music that was self-consciously weird. Now, the dead have a history of failing upwards. After Oxamoxoa comes the powerhouse pairing of Working Man's Dead and American Beauty. But they had to break a few eggs to get to that cosmic country omelet. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, real progress requires true grit, which the dead had in spades. Not that it was always a smooth trajectory. Co-engineer Bob Matthews said of Oxamoxoa, We learned everything not to do when recording an album, but we learned it really well. As always, our reactions are our own. First off, we're examining these artifacts with the benefit of hindsight. We can't just fire up the time machine and go back to 1969. And I'm not sure we'd want to. That was a scary-ass year, which we'll also talk about. And second, our impressions of these records are by nature subjective. Your mileage may vary, and that's a beautiful thing, which is why we love getting emails from listeners letting us know your take. So keep them coming, Jolly Ranchers. Before we get going, I want to say that Dead to Me is proud to be sponsored by CBD Vermont. They believe that healthy soils, strong local economies, and plant-based wellness go hand in hand. That's why they work with organic farmers across Vermont to grow the highest quality hemp and produce full-spectrum CBD extracts for wholesale. They've recently launched an online store where you can buy Vermont-made CBD products, including oils, capsules, edibles, and topicals that have been fully vetted by the staff at CBD Vermont. I wasn't really hip to the whole CBD bag, but thanks to this fine company, I have experienced the benefits, and they are amazing. You can find out for yourself. CBD Vermont ships everywhere, and as huge music fans, they're offering our listeners 15% off all products. Go to cbdvermont.com and use the code dead to me at checkout to get 15% off. All right, is everybody ready to do that rag? I hope so. Eduardo, Kevin, let's do this. So Oxamoxoa was probably the bright spot of 1969 for the dead, 
the album came out in June of that year, and a couple months later, they played a really shitty set at Woodstock. <laughs> oh, and by the way, R.I.P. Woodstock 50, the zombie festival that refused to die. Can you say R.I.P. if it never actually came to life? <laughs> you, sir, have a point. Uh, anyway, the dead always blow the big ones, as they say. Uh, later in the year, there was another big one, a uh, free concert at Altamont Speedway in December, where the dead were set to play, but bailed once the situation started getting out of hand. Never mind the fact that they were the ones who recommended that the Stones hire Hell's Angels for security. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> uh, in between Woodstock and Altamont, there were the Manson family killings. So it was a pretty dark year, all told. Um, <laughs> makes me think maybe Quentin Tarantino should make a movie where Brad Pitt stops the dead from recording Oxamoxoa. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a spoiler? I, I think that might be a spoiler. Coming in hot. Yeah, that's rough. But apart from the biker gangs and the hippie murder cults, it was a big year for music. Other albums released in 1969 include Led Zeppelin 1, uh, Kick Out the Jams by MC5. You had the debut from Crosby, Stills, and Nash, the Stooges' first record, uh, In a Silent Way by Miles Davis. And i got to be honest, guys, I don't know if Oxamoxoa can compete with any of those. I mean, when has a Grateful Dead record ever competed with another record? So that's, <laughs> that's the baseline there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they have a hard time competing with themselves. As far as records, though, you missed some uh, big ones. Uh, Trout Mask Replica. <laughs> well, in my defense, I did mention Trout Mask Replica in the intro to the last episode. Yeah. And Gilded Palace of Sin, Flying Burrito Brothers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. And now we're talking about records that sold literally dozens of copies. <laughs> <laughs> and before that, though, in 68, music from Big Pink, Sweethearts of the Rodeo. A lot of influences here. This is the turning point for them, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, pretty soon the dead would make their pivot to third eye country. Uh, makes sense because they were already living that way. Various members had left the city to colonize Marin County. They were living in barns, rehearsing, riding horses, shooting guns. But here on Oxamoxoa, the band is still desperately trying to make a psychedelic pop record that could compete with the Beatles or something. I don't know how successful they were at that. One interesting thing, though, is that Oxamoxoa is one of the first records to be recorded on 16 tracks. Yeah. And they only used two studios, so I think that's progress. <laughs> and they also recorded it twice because in the middle of it, they said 16 tracks are available. And they're like, well, I guess we got to redo right. it, man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and Bob Weir said a lot of the record is gratuitous and complex for the sake of being complex. It's overproduced and arranged. We kind of felt obliged to use all 16 tracks all the time. And Betty Cantor, who was an engineer on the record, kind of backs that up. She said the whole Grateful Dead scene was kind of an R&D thing for all sorts of areas. You're not supposed to do that? Well, yeah, let's see what happens. So it's clear that they're still in an experimental phase, but I'm not sure if it's fully baked. I mean, the band is probably fully baked. You know, the way I've been listening to these is that I have those two big box sets that they did a few years ago, right? So it's Golden Road and then Beyond Description. Yep. And um, each reissue has a couple extra bonus tracks of like sort of choice live things from... Yep. Uh, from that phase of their career. And this is the first time where, you know, going through the records chronologically that the the live stuff at the end is, it's starting to really sound like the dead. Sure. And in addition to seeing how their songcraft evolves and seeing Robert Hunter really show up and, and, and be a big part of this, there's this sort of parallel version of the dead that's evolving 
as their discography matures, which is the live dead. And, um, and it's really thrilling to hear them get to a point where the jams are like long and they're not just basically vamping on a blues progression. Right. Is it starting to sound like the dead that we know and love or a dead we prefer? Because what I said about Anthem sort of holds for this, but I think this is a superior album to that because there's songs. Yeah, I mean, they're trying to compose for sure and not just make weird sounds, but there are plenty of those too. But more importantly, in the first track on this album, which is St. Stephen, I think you hear the birth of the actual Grateful Dead. The scream in St. Stephen, when they just bust into it, is so iconic. You know, I'm actually not a big fan of St. Stephen. I can see why they dropped it from their sets for quite a while. To mm-hmm. me, it's just clunky, like some trash can Frankenstein singing a sea shanty on acid, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but now listening back to it, I can hear that it's almost proto-metal, like a precursor to Iron Man. Yeah. Yeah. There are more moments on this record where, you know, it's sort of like the first time that you hear like the force theme in the original trilogy or something. <laughs> yeah, totally. Right. There's there's these moments where you're like, okay, they're presaging something, right? Right. So let's uh give a little listen to Saint Stephen. Talk about your ills One man gathers what another man spills 
you know, it still sounds a little bit clunky to me, but it's also endearing. Uh, I actually prefer the 1971 mix of this record because much like Anthem, the Grateful Dead second-guessed their original draft and remixed it in 1971. Garcia and Lesh went back into the studio. But no matter what version of the album you listen to, there's still that aspect of being weird for weird's sake, which I think was one of Kevin's primary criticisms of Anthem, and you'll find that here in places too. What's become of the baby? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. That song is a fucking endurance test. (laughs) Here's the thing about that, man. This album is a huge flex from Jerry Garcia. Yeah, I mean, he sings every song, which you know kind of makes me wonder why I don't love it more. But yeah, this is where Jerry comes to the fore big time. In know? a band that's founded like on, on anarchy and there's no leader, he clearly steps up. Uh, Dupree's Diamond Blues is just a destructively good song. Uh, <laughs> it does this whole like weird like acid cowboy stuff, mountains on the moon, uh, doing that rag, taps into his bluegrass stuff. Yeah, man, there's just some beautifully strange ditties on this record. It's um, impossible yeah. not to admire on some level. I think my issues are probably residual. Like, I used to be actively mad at this record. Uh, Before I got on the bus, I would make the occasional attempt to see what all the fuss was about with the Grateful Dead. And I remember checking out Oxamoxoa because I knew it was psych pop. And that's a style and era of music that I tend to love. But this thing just didn't click at all at least at the time, you know, and I'm someone who had listened to a ton of Barrett era Pink Floyd. I was a fan Mm -hmm. of the band Love and even stuff like Skip Spence. So when I listened to Oxamoxoa, I just felt like it was a false bill of goods. Now I can appreciate it more, but to be honest, the whole learner's curve thing does start to get old. I I think that's real, though. I I think that's anybody coming in now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like listening to it expressly because you want to try to get into the dead, this one's going to end Anthem are going to be hard ones to get into. Yeah. Right. But I do think Oxamoxoa probably is an easier entry point than Anthem if you're a newbie. And part of that is the songwriting. And like Eduardo said a few minutes ago, this is where Robert Hunter becomes fully integrated into the dead situation. Uh, He and his girlfriend were actually living with Jerry and Mountain Girl in Larkspur, which meant that Garcia and Hunter could actually write together. And I think that probably has something to do with Jerry upping his game. You know, he's a laid back guy, but he's competitive, too. And he always wanted the band to be better. I passed around to all of you guys this interview with Branford Marcellus talking about the dead. And it was just a bunch of squares sitting around talking to the jazz guy about the dead and Jerry Garcia. And they were asking them about the jams. And his response was like, it could get loose, but the dead hit the stage. They came to do business. They did not come to be amateurs. And I think this is the first time on record where Garcia, not only was he emboldened by his partnership with Robert Hunter, but he was like, we got to do business because he listened to Anthem of the Sun. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, he did want the band to be better and proof positive of that was he was willing to fire his kid brother, Bobby Weir and pig. (laughs) Yep. I mean, they were not in the band for a minute, but in true dead fashion, you know, they just kept showing up. It's weird with Oxamoxoa, though. There's a ton of organ on this record, but Pigpen plays none of it. 
Nope. He's not on Oxamoxoa at all. Uh, all of those keyboard parts are actually played by Tom Constantine, who was Phil's avant-garde friend that they <laughs> brought in to weird up Anthem, although maybe he's less weird here. There's a wonderful quote about this album uh, from somebody, and I don't know who it is uh, credited to, but it says, the thinking about making it was, let's get not less weird, but less exclusively weird. <laughs> yeah, that sums it up. Yeah. Uh, Eduardo, do you think this record is less weird than Anthem? I think uh, What's Become of the Baby really... Uh, <laughs> it's, it's just impossible for a record with that song on it. To not be weird. Yeah. And the other thing, to your point just now about uh, Pigpen's role, I don't know if um, if you guys noticed this, but in the liner notes, he is credited, Ron McKernan is. <laughs> yeah, he's credited as Pigpen. Yeah, yeah, not for any instruments. <laughs> <Right>. He's just... <laughs> he plays the Pigpen. Yeah, I mean, he was self-exiled I think from their musical development and the dead was not the kind of band that would force somebody to do something you know and he still gets to hang around and you know he's got his good morning little schoolgirl turn on your love light situation in the live show but became increasingly less integral to their studio work on the other hand it's an opportunity for Tom Constantine who I think really shows some spirit on the song China Cat Sunflower yeah. Which, much like the other one from Anthem of the Sun, is a really crucial addition to their repertoire, although the version that we're about to hear may not be as fully realized as the later China Cats that we've come to know and love. But let's listen to the studio version from Oxamoxoa. <laughs> It's there, but it's not all there. It's like the Cheshire Cat has only partially appeared. Yeah, well, it's missing its good friend. I know you, writer. You know, there's something about this album more so, I think, than, than Anthem that it just feels kind of slight to me. And I think that's really evident on the China. It's just sort of, 
you're sort of looking there for the song that you know and you keep thinking it might turn up and it just doesn't and i think there's a lot about this record to me that even though i i like uh some of the songs on this quite a bit um like dupree and and saint stephen it's not a satisfying listen to me for some reason yeah i get that and again these are our impressions and they're going to be subjective Kevin, you had a different take on China Cat. You actually thought the Alice in Wonderland through the looking glass qualities of the studio version that are just not as present in any of the live takes. Yeah, there's something about this version that for me just it it kills it, man. It, it they really? all all this studio experimentation that they were trying to get to all this weirdness, this gesture quality of the merry pranksters. It, it's all like baked in. Yeah. It feels right, and it feels so unlike any other version you're ever going to hear of it. I guess what I'm missing is, like, the the sort of definitiveness of some of the parts. Like, you know, mm-hmm. Bob continued to tweak his cool, you know, pseudo-yes lick right. that really makes the song. <laughs> and, you know, they went through a few different permutations, but I think as he gained confidence, that part, you know, starts to ring out with more authority. And here it sort of seems like it's he's kind of ducking a little bit. But I do like the bounce, and it's definitely my favorite track on the record besides, say, Mountains of the Moon, which we'll also listen to. Mm. And before we do, I have a really weird aside about Mountains of the Moon. When I lived in Burlington, Vermont, there was this um, Americana cat uh, who went by the name Tom Banjo. And he was an older dude. So, like, you know, he was definitely uh, 1960s vintage. You know, he's of that generation. And he told me that he is the reference in the song Mountains of the Moon. (laughs) I had no way to know if I should believe this because how hard would it be to change your name to Tom Benjo <laughs> and then just go around making the claim that you're the guy from the song? He probably just had to change his first name. He was probably Fred Banjo <laughs> and just had to go by Tom. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the folk he goes into the phone booth and emerges Tom Banjo, superhero. <laughs> but this was not something that I could verify. Like, even preparing for this episode, a reasonably diligent internet search turned up nothing about uh, Tom Banjo being the Tom Banjo from Mountains of the Moon. But it is a really wonderful song. It's got a mysterious quality. It kind of envelops you like a fine mist, just truly haunting and beautiful. Let's check it out. The city in the rain 
of solitude, twenty degrees in all. All the dancing kings and wives assembled in the hall. Lost is the long and loneliest time, very simple flying. All along the, all along the mountains of the moon. that's just you know an absolutely lovely um early hunter ballad that really um has all of those kinds you know the the sort of the mystical quality there's there's like a sort of a weird uh orientalism about sure. the the lyrics and and even sonically a little bit that is is maybe uh culturally <laughs> well we could call it awkward for sure but you know <laughs> going back to china cat like hunter wrote that when he was laying on his couch tripping balls you know <laughs> it's like write what you see <laughs> and if it's a flaming tabby cat so be it <laughs> but you know mountains of the moon kind of goes in a different direction it's like you know space appalachia it is an absolutely fantastic song and and, and i think that along with dupree which as long as we're on sort of maybe culturally not okay things uh <laughs> too but but they're both just absolutely perfect songs. Yeah, we know after this that they go into cosmic country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they kind of co-invented it alongside the Birds and Graham Parsons. Their own brand of it, I think. But yeah, I, I subscribe to your newsletter, Casey. And, <laughs> Somebody's got it. <laughs> and I, this is one of the instances where you can see it moving underneath the hood, the, the push towards that. Well, as a warm-up for the Hunter Garcia tandem, the album is, I think, really successful as sort of an appetizer for the songs that we know are going to come. And it still feels like a treat to be able to hear Garcia's voice as clearly as it sounds sometimes on this record and to hear that kind of beautiful, young, idealistic uh, sounding Jerry that is is sort of so at odds with the late career um, image we have of Jerry. Yeah, he's crooning here, not croaking. Yeah. Although... 
you know, some of the weary croak is poignant in its own way, but I agree with you. It's just such a incredibly resplendent display of Garcia. And if we're talking about Mountains of the Moon specifically, the lyrics really do uh, touch on that Americana Appalachian Absolutely. thought stream uh, and connects it to that tradition in a more surrealistic way. But then again, you know, tripping balls. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and sp- speaking of tripping balls, one thing we haven't uh, mentioned right now, uh, uh, so, so everybody's clear, Owsley was the one working on their gear at this point in time. Yeah. Owsley and Dan Healy, you know, other folks, um, he co-founded Alembic, which ended up being a really important audio research and development laboratory for the dead. Um, but Bear was there sometimes and other times he wasn't. He's kind of in and out, but never too far from the dead scene. But an absolute visionary. I mean, this guy had a metaphysical understanding of sound in addition to his role as the band's primary funding source in the early days, uh, their <laughs> acid dealer, <laughs> you know. And plus he could wire up a really crazy live rig. But he did take a little break because I think sometimes the band would get frustrated with how painstaking he was with regard to <laughs> uh, music equipment. <laughs> and, do it. Uh, yeah, and he tended to annoy uh, a lot of people in their orbit. And, you know, also he got arrested, so he went to the big house for a little while. But you think about Owsley, Bear, Stanley, and man, they just don't make them like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And Which reminds me, Garcia famously said about Bear, there's nothing wrong with that guy that losing a few thousand brain cells wouldn't fix. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Taken as a one-two punch, do Anthem and Oxomoxo, does this encapsulate the problematic aspects of the dead in studio? Problematic how? Like what they're singing about or the fact that they can never seem to get their shit together? <laughs> the latter. The latter. Um, the reductionist take I have of the Grateful Dead studio albums is that they usually could not get out of their own way. Yeah, that's um, for sure. And then, yeah. and then when they tried to, it just sounds lazy. <laughs> yeah, it's like they work really, really hard at really stupid things, burn themselves out, and then <laughs> just say, ah, fuck it. We're just going to do this the quick and dirty way. And... You know, that actually happened because around this time, the Grateful Dead recorded their album Live Dead, which was a concert recording, the very Mm -hmm. first made on 16 tracks. And in part, Live Dead was recorded and rushed to the marketplace as a means of paying down some of that debt that they accrued (laughs) with Warner Brothers from Anthem and Oxamoxoa. And, you know, in a couple of episodes, we're going to be at the two albums that are the counterfactual in that depiction of the dead. Yeah, man, they got their shit together. And it was quite an interesting pivot at the time. I don't think anyone actually expected them to go cosmic country or psychedelic Americana or whatever you want to call it. And obviously, their contributions in that area are mighty and are still being mined to this day. And like Ed said, you know, we're going to be putting on our spurs mighty soon. I have to be a little bit candid about the fact that I'm really excited to leave this phase of their discography behind. <laughs> yeah. um, there's nothing egregious or, or dislikable about these albums. They're sort of unnecessarily challenging. To me, they kind of play a little a little dated well they are time capsules for sure yeah the fact that they have you know many different mixes of each one of these last two albums doesn't really you know neither one of them fixes the source material really yeah and i think the grateful dead obviously had 
issues with these records too because that's why they went back in 1971 and, and remixed Anthem of the Sun and yeah. Oxamox Oa. Uh, but for the listener, I mean, some of that's just really fascinating history, but it does leave us with a certain vagueness about what these records are supposed to represent. But on the other hand, I really do love and cherish a lot of these songs, and I know our listeners uh, do too because we get letters uh, from folks all the time talking about their favorite Dead records, and Anthem is one of them, and Oxamoxoa is another one. Uh, you know, there's folks for whom that would be the case throughout their discography. Right, and, and I think, you know, we mentioned about how Darkstar didn't end up on Anthem. Mm-hmm. And if they spent a little more time and, and combined this and Anthem of the Sun, and then through Darkstar on there, we'd be having a very different conversation. And and to be clear, it'd be a very different band. Yeah. Maybe. It's hard to say. I mean, you know, there's a lot of speculation on our behalf from our vantage point about, like, how these albums would be received by the youth culture at the time. I mean, you know, we can make some educated guesses, but... Uh, there's probably a lot of factors that are both like uh, hindering the Grateful Dead's commercial potential uh, and then also a lot of factors that are simultaneously increasing their fan base. And I think that they're the same fucking factors. <laughs> <laughs> no matter how you slice it, the Grateful Dead were in a phase of rapid creative evolution, both as a live band and as a studio band. And in the coming episodes, I think we're going to see that come together in a different way than uh, what we've discussed so far. So I'm really looking forward to it. And we'll catch you guys next time. And don't forget to go to CBDVermont.com and enter the code dead to me at checkout for 15% off all CBD products. Dead to Me is a Chunky Glasses production on the Osiris Podcast Network. Recorded in Washington, D.C. with hosts Casey Ray and Eduardo Nunes. Executive producer Kevin Hill. See you next time.